The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, happy Tuesday, everybody. A warm welcome to Scorebox with Karen Cho, myself, Steve Sedgwick, and these are your headlines. Israel and Hamas agree to extend a temporary ceasefire by two days after another round of hostages are freed, whilst U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken prepares to pay his third visit to the region. NATO foreign ministers gathering in Brussels as the alliance looks to shore up support for Ukraine, while Sweden continues its push for accession. The NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg telling CNBC he's confident it will join the bloc. I'm confident it will happen, uh, but of course I would like to see the ratification finalized uh, much sooner, quicker than we see now. Fast fashion group Sheen reportedly files for IPO, uh, moving forward with its long-awaited listing and what is likely to be one of the largest US public debuts of the past decade. Meanwhile, U.S. consumers shell out billions with Cyber Monday projected to be the biggest online shopping day ever as bargain hunters snap up deals ahead of the holiday season. So our top story today, the humanitarian truce between Israel and Hamas has been extended by an additional two days as both sides continue to exchange hostages and prisoners. Hamas has freed 69 hostages since the ceasefire began Friday. Israel has freed 150 prisoners since then, whilst continuing to make dozens of arrests in the occupied West Bank. The U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, will make his third wartime visit to the Middle East this week with the trips planned to Israel, the West Bank and Dubai. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said the country would continue towards the goal of eradicating terrorism from Gaza. We're continuing with the outline as agreed. And we're also continuing with the main goal that we said to bring about the release of our hostages, to complete the elimination of Hamas and, of course, also to ensure that this threat will not repeat itself in Gaza, no matter what it was. And there will be no regime that encourages terrorism, educates for terrorism and pays for terrorism. Speaking just before Qatar announced an extension to the truce, the Palestinian foreign minister emphasised the human cost of continued bombing. La tregua... The truce went into effect with 15,000 deaths. If we see the war resume tomorrow, then the number of deaths will double, because the concentration of the Palestinian population is now twofold. All are concentrated in the south of the Gaza Strip, two million of them in half of the territory of the Gaza Strip. Any Israeli attack, instead of killing one child, will kill two. So for us, it is important to try and extend this truce for the longest possible. NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg has told CNBC he's confident Sweden will become a member of the 31-country military alliance, but stressed he wants to see the pace of the process pick up. This is NATO foreign ministers gathered today in Brussels. Security all dominant. Let's get out to Sylvia for more. Sylvia, just talk us through the conversation you had with Jens Stoltenberg. 
Well, Karen, this was, uh, there were really hopes that this was going to be the meeting where Sweden would actually become a full member of the Defense Alliance. But that is no longer the case, essentially because Hungary and Turkey have yet to ratify Sweden's accession to the Defense Alliance. But just to give some context to our audience, I just want to run you through the timeline of events, because this has been an ongoing question for Sweden for almost two years now, because it was back in May 2020. 2022, when both Sweden and Finland actually applied to become members of NATO. And of course, Finland is already a member of the Defense Alliance that happened last April. And when we had that big summit of all the NATO heads of state back in July, the president of Turkey, Mr. Erdogan, did say that he agreed to Sweden's accession to NATO. But when it comes to practical steps, we have yet not seen that happening. In fact, earlier this month, what we got was a delay in the Turkish parliament to vote for the Sweden, uh, Swedish accession to NATO. So at this stage, that is still very much a process that it is in the open. But when I spoke to the secretary general of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, he did say that He's still confident that this is going to happen, but he would have liked to see this being done faster. Let's take a look. Sweden will become a member. Uh, all allies have invited them to become a member. And uh, the good news is that President Erdogan uh, a few weeks ago uh, agreed to put forward a proposal for the Turkish uh, parliament. And the Turkish parliament has started uh, to, to deal uh, and, uh, and to handle this proposal. So I'm confident it will happen, uh, but of course I would like to see the ratification uh, finalized uh, much sooner and quicker than we see now. So one of the main topics that's on the table today and tomorrow is actually support for Ukraine. In fact, the foreign affairs minister of Ukraine, Mr. Kuleba, is actually going to join the NATO foreign affairs ministers tomorrow. And this is also a very interesting development to follow, because when you look at the United States, when you look at some comments from Hungary and other European countries, of course, huge question mark about whether we are, where we are in terms of support for Ukraine, both militarily and financially. And so when I spoke to Jens Stoltenberg, I actually posed him the question to really to what extent is actually President Putin winning this war in Ukraine? When this war started in February last year, uh, most experts and also here at NATO, we feared that Ukraine would collapse uh, in weeks and that Russia will take control over Kiev within days. That didn't happen. The Ukrainians have been able to push them back in the north, in the east around Kharkiv and in the south, uh, south uh, around uh, Kherson. And uh, they have liberated roughly 50% of the territory that Russia occupied at the beginning of the war. And on top of that, they have inflicted heavy losses on uh, Russia. This is a big win for Ukraine. Ukraine has prevailed as a sovereign independent nation. But we should not underestimate Russia. They are uh, putting their economy on war footing. They are, they are sending in more uh, troops and, uh, and forces. So we must sustain our support to Ukraine. And I welcome the US leadership on, uh, on this. The US has been leading uh, in providing support. But it is also an important message that almost half of the military support is coming from Canada and European allies. So this is not US alone. This is actually North America and Europe together providing support to Ukraine. Are you worried that the US will actually fall behind, further behind, when it comes to supporting Ukraine amid the upcoming election? 
I'm confident that the United States will uh, continue to support Ukraine, partly because uh, there is a strong bipartisan support for supporting Ukraine, but also because I'm absolutely confident the United States understands that it's dangerous for the United States uh, if uh, President Putin wins in Ukraine. This is closely watched in Beijing. Mm -hmm. And what happens in Europe matters what happens in Asia and, and vice versa. So we need to stop authoritarian leaders, not only in solidarity with Ukraine, but also because this is about uh, sending a clear message that uh, this kind of uh, war aggression using military force, they cannot achieve what they want. So uh, I'm confident that the United States will continue to provide support, not least because it is in U.S. interest to do so. So Jens Stoltenberg there with a very clear message, guys, that if the United States stops providing support to Ukraine, that that will also be detrimental to the United States. So, of course, as we approach that very important U.S. election, a lot of question marks about what sort of help really we'll see from the U.S. vis-a-vis -vis this war in Ukraine. But Jens Stoltenberg at this stage does not seem worried. Um Sylvia, I had a good look at your interview and listening to those chunks there. Fantastic work. Um, can I just make a couple of points? And I just wonder if you can react to those. First of all, I don't think Sweden's the problem. The thing is, I know that the Swedes want to be uh, in NATO. I have a lot of Swedish friends and family. I, I get where they want. But the truth of the matter is they've been working so closely for the best part of 30 years with NATO anyway, that actually, in reality, it won't make a huge amount of difference in terms of actually the interoperability of Sweden and NATO. I, I know, for instance, they've been doing military and air exercises with them since the Partnership for Peace in 1994. So, so I, I, I think the Swedish-NATO alliance is firm, regardless of, of the paperwork of getting them in. The second point is that I really want to raise is, don't the allies within NATO have problems actually with some of their own members already because of how porous it is the sale of arms from certain members to other places which then end up in Russia as well. Isn't it more on the eastern flank and the southern flank that NATO has its problems rather than worrying about the northern flank? Well, so let's start with uh, the Sweden uh, accession to NATO. You're right in saying that they are working quite closely. We're seeing Swedish troops actually taking part in NATO exercises. And yes, both sides actually say that they are working more and more closely together. But of course, once you've asked to be a member of NATO, you would also like to see at this stage, there's only two countries that have yet to ratify your application. So there's also some uh, frustration, really. Why has this not happened for Sweden? when it has already happened for Finland. But yes, when it comes to practical steps, the, we are actually seeing Sweden and NATO, as well as Finland and so on, working very closely together. When it comes to the broader NATO pressures, of course, there... When you actually look, for instance, at the latest trade numbers between Turkey and Russia, there's also question marks there about what sort of support one NATO member, Turkey, could actually be providing to Russia in this context of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But again, when you look at some of the remarks from Jens Sotternberg, he is still saying that the alliance is still very much together and that he is not worried about all of these uh, pressures. But of course, these are part of the conversations that are happening here, how to step up support to Ukraine and how to make sure that sanctions applied by Western countries are actually being respected by all countries, not just Turkey, but of course 
other third parties too. So, of course, a lot of pressure on these foreign affairs ministers, Steve, also in the context of, of course, the war that's taking place between Israel and Hamas. I have quite a lot of questions for the foreign affairs ministers when it comes to that too. But indeed, we, I'll just leave you with the comment from Jan Stoltenberg yesterday at the press conference that we face the most dangerous world in decades. So I think that also answers your point. Yeah, I'm, let's go a little bit deeper into the Turkey problem that the NATO continually has. We, we remember the old defence system debate about uh, whether the, uh, the Turks are going to get their F-35s or whether they wanted S-400 defence systems from Russia as well. And, and that the US is saying you can't have it both ways. Terrific deep dive on this. I'm sure you've read it uh, from Adam Sampson, Chris Cook and Max Zeddon of the FT team, looking at the fact that one of the top U.S. officials, Brian Nelson, the U.S. Treasury Undersecretary for Terrorism and Financial yeah. Intelligence, is visiting in Istanbul and Ankara this week. And I'll just take a snippet from that article in the FT as well. In the first nine months of 2023, Turkey reported $158 million of exports of 45 goods on the U.S high priority list to Russia and five former Soviet countries suspected of acting as intermediaries from Moscow. That was three times the level recorded over the same period in 2022 when the war in Ukraine began. NATO's got a Turkey problem again, whether it wants to say it overtly or actually talk about it behind closed doors. And it was interesting because I actually posed that question to Jens Soltenberg, but he didn't give me an answer when it comes to that. He just said, you know, in these two days here in Brussels, we'll be discussing sanctions, we'll be discussing support for Ukraine. But he really evaded the specific question on Turkey. But it's, it's a very valid one. Is NATO actually united in this response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine? It's, it's not just Turkey, really, they, when you look at this. There's also question marks about Hungary. They're blocking a lot of financial support to Ukraine at this stage. And even though that's a matter for the EU itself, not so much for NATO, Hungary is also a member of NATO. And to what extent are they willing to support Ukraine, a neighboring nation too? In fact, a very important editorial note, we'll be speaking to the Hungarian Minister for Foreign Affairs later on today. And let's see what he has to say, both when it comes to support for Ukraine, but also the broader alliance and where, what's the state of play, really, when it comes to the future of NATO. Sylvia, thank you very much for bringing us the latest around that interview. Now, coming up on the show, Sheen reportedly files to go public in New York in what could be one of the largest U.S. listings in nearly a decade. We'll dig into the details. Also, OPEC and its allies are reportedly considering further cuts to oil output. We'll discuss the state of the energy sector with Francesca Storacci, partner at EQT Infrastructure and former CEO of NL later this hour. And ahead on the show, SAP CEO Christian Klein will be joining us around the desk later this morning. That is coming up at 8.45 CET and a first on CNBC. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com.
Welcome back. Let's take a look at these Asian indices. We just did take a look, didn't you? <laughs> Hong Kong was down 1.1%. The only one uh, in positive territory was uh, the ASX out of those four you were just looking at. Right. China's central bank has vowed to deploy a variety of targeted monetary tools to keep liquidity levels sufficient and boost demand. It marks the PBOC's latest intervention to shore up China's post-pandemic recovery. Isn't that interesting? That whole sentence, to shore up China's post-pandemic recovery. We weren't supposed to be shoring up the recovery. It was supposed to be a bursting of activity, wasn't it? Anyway, it's been weighing down, uh, weighed down by really sluggish demand and a downturn in the property sector. On Monday, China posted a sharp pullback in industrial profits, rising just 2.7% in October, compared with around 12% in September and 17% in August. In the meantime, a rare red day on the US indices, Karen. Yeah, it was all about big numbers, but just not on the market yesterday. It was about Cyber Monday and investors rolling across from the Cyber Week and looking at the amount of spending taking place and what those patterns mean for the Fed. This is a market that has moved a long way on the assumption that we're done on the rate hikes, that we now have cooler inflation setting in and slightly fading demand, but uh, more than 12 billion said to be spent on Cyber Monday. The market looking at those numbers, certain stocks did actually push higher in the retail basket, the likes of Etsy, Shopify, you saw some value back in those names, but on the broader markets, it was a fade. Investors taking some chips off the table, and perhaps it was a positive signal that meant some negative noise for the markets. Don't forget, we've seen different swings and roundabouts where weaker data is perceived as good news for the market. So any very strong shopping pattern can be perceived as potentially negative when it comes to monetary policy. So we're downbeat on the trade, two tenths down for the S&P 500. Worth noting too, sectors that have bounded higher at the back end last week, also giving back some territory. For instance, healthcare was one of the weaker parts of the market in trade. Let's take a look at Treasuries. The yield curve this morning, we're 4.39, so we're still softening up on this yield, and 4.86, so backing off the 5% mark. So just a, a little bit of cooling off in the last 24 hours, still on some of those yields. A quick look at the Brent WTI story and what we're seeing on Commodities Complex. We're up right across the board from gold prices that have been a real standout uh, above that $2,000 mark, again, making further headway. Brent and WTI, markets closely looking at these because we've got that producer meeting later this week after it was postponed. Investors trying to guess just where the Saudis are at with negotiations with other major producers about curbing supply. But I want to take you back to what we're seeing on the S&P 500. And uh, there's been a lot of commentary about where we go to from here on the major market. Some are saying we've got a, the bullish view into your end now that perhaps we could see another 5% higher. That was from one bullish market commentator <laughs> suggesting that there could be a bounce to 4,800 by the end of the year. This was funds strat uh, Tom Lee. But uh, let's get to Ron William, who is bound up. Tom Lee was long the market when he said that? <clears throat> Potentially, maybe even, <laughs> even longer than what we've seen in terms of the bounce. Now, Ron Williams with us, founder and principal market strategist. RW Market Advisory, and I brought it up because it's quite the opposite scenario for what you're fleshing out to us in terms of the market from here. Just explain the year-end performance that you see. Well, we've seen an, uh, an equity uh, blow-off rally. It's been very impulsive, um, and there has been strong concentration risk in the tech sector, which we all know about, but it, that's been at actually record year uh, extremes now. So there's asymmetric risk already built in. Uh, we're also approaching that psychological uh, uh oh moment where people wonder if we've maybe overstretched too much and so the santa claus rally may have come a little bit early 
and maybe further muted into December so and the new year. So Santa didn't wait until the 24th of December. He turned up pretty much in November. I think we've had the, we've had the discount weekend already <laughs> and the presents have arrived. Um, and perhaps into uh, both uh, December uh, festive season and the new year, we might have a, a more muted time. And that's certainly what the cycle analysis is suggesting on the chart that we have on the screen, uh, further risk into the next few weeks and the new year. Just, Ron, just following up on that chart, I don't know if Roger can put it up again for us. Thank, thanks, Roger. Um, that, that chart doesn't have much ambiguity about it. It doesn't say, what was your other chap's name? Tom Lee. Tom Lee, who may or may not be long the market. I don't know. He sounds a very nice chap. Um, <laughs> he's looking for gains. You're saying, no, there's no way that we get above that July 2023 peak from that chart and that we do pretty much give back. And what, we're talking about 8 to 10% there. It would be healthy for us to have a, a, a correction. Having also, in terms of the, how much of a correction, it's in line with what we've seen since the July peak. We've had a, a sideways mean reversion environment, uh, notwithstanding big swings uh, along the way. Uh, so because of the latest big swing, which, uh, at f uh, four week um, uh, highs and an impulsive move, the market is now uh, more, uh, more bullish. I've heard consensus uh, projections for 5,000 for year end as well. So that's natural, it's linear extrapolation, but we must take care uh, because it has been a peak in July and mean inversion thereafter. To be fair to Tom Lee, he is calling a zigzag pattern, so he's not saying we go straight up from here. He thinks there will be a little bit of a sell-off before going back up. Could that be a chance? Could we actually see selling take place before we jag, uh, get that line back up at the end of the year? Well, if we break above the July high, of course, th th there can be uh, further upside thereafter, particularly if there's more sector rotation and it becomes more of a broad move and not just tech heavy. Uh, of course, the tech uh, respite was also following the uh, unwind in rates. Uh, so that makes sense. But my view on rates, is, as we'll discuss in a moment, um, is that we've probably hit support for now and we'll likely head back higher next year. I'm going to compromise the amount of time we can spend on Treasuries and oil because I love this chart. And I just think it's, if the momentum that we see in the market becomes um, a self-fulfilling prophecy and then the exuberance carries on, what happens on the chart if we do burst through? Does that create more tension for a more aggressive downtick? You said, I think it would be healthy. Uh, let, let's say, uh, let's say, you're wrong at the peak, yes. but you're, you're right in the concept. If the market, which does have these phases of unbelievable exuberance, just bursts through, let's say another 300 points, let's say it does get to nearly that 5,000 level, does that augur really badly in terms of the chart pattern, or actually does it create a new chart pattern? It, it, it maintains the asymmetric risk, but for later, so we can push back uh, in, in, in time duration. Um, and certainly the exuberance just adds further weight uh, to the downside as and when that does occur. But for now, the high probability is down after a great run. Um, and it's in line with the November seasonality. I think where some people might get caught out is extending that November seasonality into year end. Uh, which may not happen this occasion. Got it. Let's move on to your treasuries. You're keen to talk about that. What is this chart telling us? Is the US 10-year correction at key support around 436 in terms of yield? What, uh, have we got that one, Roger? We're not far off that level. We're, we're three yeah. basis points shy of that support it's, level. We're basically there. And, and it's part of the same story that we, we be, began with. This is uh, uh, what was partly fueling the equity market rally, uh, the, the so-called so uh, Fed silent pivot. Um, and you know, the test of that 5% historic level uh, on US 10-year yields. That correction is, has been in play. It is likely to uh, hit important support, uh, which is a combination of the October 2022 peak, uh, but also some key uh, tactical support areas uh, around the same point. Uh, 
according to, uh, I mean, both the price analysis but also momentum indicators, uh, we could have some uh, basing at this stage uh, with maybe further downside risk uh, only marginally, but the big move long term in the new year is for a resumption of the structural uh, uh, trend in rates and inflation. But we're getting so much dynamic data, so how much faith do you put into the technicals in this case? For instance, I'll cite later this week we get the PCE numbers, so what we could tamer inflation potentially off the back of what could be a strong Cyber Monday, Cyber Week. So we could have a, you know, a tug of war between some of the soft and data, strong data from here. That, more than anything, that strengthens the, uh, the chart and behavioral case because it's during uh, these key inflection points uh, that coincide with, with event-driven uh, uh, headlines or, or, or data uh, where, we, where we actually get to see the pulse check in the market and, and see how it reacts. So actually, I'm looking at both uh, the technicals and, and, and the headline news yeah. to see how that may uh, change sentiment. I think for now, we'll probably hit support and hold, uh, but it is something for us to watch. Apologies for the brevity of this. I've got about 45 seconds to have a look at oil because we spent so much time in the S&P. Tell us, are we going to get a break or what's going on? So there's this long-term uh, base pattern accumulation buying pressure that has been in the market for about a year uh, or so. Uh, that's what led to the break up. Uh, which was about 50% on oil, but we also saw that on sectors like XLE, which was a big winner last year, one of the very few, as, as we all rec recall. Uh, while the market holds above $74, that's a specific technical level. Brent or WTI? Brent? Uh, both. Okay. Uh, uh, and of course, there can be deviations of, of uh, a dollar or so uh, on either contract. But while we hold above that, uh, that long-term uh, accumulation pattern, which is buying pressure, remains. Um, and that's also part of a commodities uh, long-term story for next year, if and when inflation returns. But also, let's not forget the geopolitical uh, risks that remain um, and could provide some tail risks uh, in the near term. Um, I think that you've been in for about five months, so we'll do it a bit quicker next time, Ron. But nice to see you. Thank you very much. Likewise. We can fit in with your schedule. Nice to see you, sir. And we've really learned something today, so I appreciate it. Thank Ron you. William, founder and principal market strategist at RW Market Advisory. Uh, I think Karen should take the next story away because, I mean, this, you've been doing a lot of work on this one. I have been researching just a little bit around supply chains. Well, Sheen has reportedly filed confidential papers to list in the United States in what would be the largest IPO, one of the largest IPOs over the past decade. The Chinese fast fashion group was last valued at $66 billion and could list in 2024, according to reports. Let's get out to Lin Lin for more. Lin, I was just looking at the supply chain issues here. It's fascinating. We've uh, been talking about fast fashion, how some of the major players like H&M, Zara, need to address supply chains, and they have started to do that over the years. Here we have a, a, another player coming in that undercuts them, that seemingly is addressing none of these issues. Yeah, and now, of course, as, as you just said, Karen, this news that it could list on the U.S. stock exchange next year. Now, as you said there, uh, Sheehan has experienced a meteoric rise in recent years, and uh, it is both known for its uh, on-trend but also dirt-cheap pricing and as a major disruptor in that fast fashion space, it's taken away market share from the likes of H&M as well as Gap. In terms of the D 
details of this listing. There's no information on the size of the offering, but uh, its last valuation in May above 60 billion. It's got the big names in Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley and JP Morgan uh, that will be leading the underwriting for this offering, according to sources that have spoken to CNBC. And, of course, this potential IPO set for 2024, coming off the back of a rough two-year stateside for uh, IPOs. We've seen a recent flurry of activity. But even if you look at the Birkenstock and uh, the Instant Carts, uh, they have disappointed investors uh, with their share prices sliding below uh, the IPO prices after debut. Now, just a little bit of background on Shein. It was first established about 11 years ago go in uh, the city of uh, Nanjing and uh, it's now actually headquartered here in Singapore but most of its supply chain still in Guangdong and uh, it has uh, courted some controversy in recent years with uh, Washington in particular uh, accusing Xi'an in relation to forced labor in its supply chains. Uh, that's of course something that Xi'an has denied. It says it has a no tolerance policy when it comes to forced labor. And of course, if this uh, IPO does go ahead in 2024, it will be the biggest of a Chinese company since uh, Didi two years ago. Back to you guys. Super work. Thank you very much indeed for that, Lynn. Uh, we'll catch you uh, again soon. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho weekdays on CNBC.